Good evening, everybody. My name is Jordan, and this is episode 27 of Sodom and I. All right, and we are on part three of the seven churches spoken about in Revelations. This one is Pergamum, the call not to compromise. Mm-hmm. Spiritually distracted or compromised? Mm-hmm. Lou is an overcomer. A light on a hill that shines bright in the spiritual darkness. Repent, live a life of faith, and avoid a compromised lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Much like Pergamum, evil in society is all around us and attempting to infiltrate the church and our very souls. May we always allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and let us repent and turn from sin. Mm-hmm. Jesus knows the intense pressure you're facing. Listen to the Spirit of God. Be spiritually on guard and press in. Pray, trust the Lord, and walk in faith. Pergamum a church surrounded by evil influence, a call not to compromise. Faith is essential when facing ungodly influence. Mm -hmm. In the book of Revelation, John addressed seven churches. We looked at Ephesus and Smyrna, which one, forsaken their first love, two, experienced persecution and was encouraged not to fear. Today, we'll be looking at the Church of Pergamum. At the time, Pergamum was a center of Roman emperor worship, and those in power demanded allegiance to worshiping a godlike emperor. There was a large throne-like altar built on a cliff that overlooked the city. It was for the Greek god Zeus. It may be one reason John refers to the area as Satan's throne. The second reason may be because Pergamum worshipped Roman emperors who wielded great power at that time in history. No matter the reason, everyone knew the city of Pergamum John referenced. And then this is Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 in NIV. And I realized in, uh, in King James, it's like Pergamos instead of Pergamum, but it's referring to the same thing. Mm -hmm. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the uh, Nicolaitans. There we go. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Located about 50 miles uh, north of Smyrna, Pergamum was a leading religious center of Asia Minor. It was a home of pagan worship and cults, including Zeus, Athena, and many other false gods. It is thought that Pergamum became a Roman province around 130 BC, and like Smyrna, the people participated in and encouraged the worship of the Roman emperor. Pergamum was also known for its civilization and learning. It was noted for its pottery, tapestries, and parchments. The city had a library with some 200,000 volumes and, and was second only to that of Alexandria. Like Smyrna, the believers experienced persecution for their faith in Christ and as John notes, the believers remain true to their faith and in the name of Christ. The word of God is powerful. The double-edged sword that John refers to in verse 12 is a picture of a weapon that was used in battle, having two sharp cutting edges. No matter how it was wielded, it would cut true and deep. In verse 12, John references Jesus as the one who has the double-edged sword. Friends, the word of God will cut true and deep to divide truth from error. Yeah, amen. John also references a double-edged sword as the word of God being spoken by the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and who walks among the lampstands, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 16 again referring to Jesus. The word of God will cut through all the spiritually false teaching and worldly lies. It will separate and clearly reveal the truth from error. It cuts deep, much like a double-edged sword used properly on a battlefield to reveal sin and bring spiritual healing and life to those who believe. It will accomplish all that is designed and intends to accomplish when used correctly. The word of God is all powerful and it can cut through a spiritual heart of stone. However, however, if the word of God is ignored, muzzled or imprisoned, not listened or adhered to and not shared, it will do nothing for the person who is, who is living in rebellion to the things of God. <laughs> if the word of God is ignored, muzzled, imprisoned, not listened or adhered to, or not shared, it will do nothing for the person who is living in rebellion to the things of God. But remember, the word of God is powerful. God spoke the worlds into existence. The word of God will break free is it is living and active it will never be totally extinguished and it will accomplish all it is meant to accomplish and all the promises of god in scripture and all that have been spoken have been and still are being fulfilled 
The power of God's word will break every chain. Faith in Jesus will arise. Lives will be changed. And no power on earth or even the gates of hell will ever prevail. Mm. God knows and sees all, including your situation. Roman rule was the ruling power at the time, and the emperor's word was powerful. It was. Roman governors were placed over areas, and they were divided into two classes. Oh, excuse me. One, those who had the power in life and death were thought to wield the sword. Two, those who did not have the right to have uh, someone put to death could not wield the sword. The fact that Jesus has a double-edged sword, I believe, speaks to the idea that his authority was higher than either type of Roman governor. The power of Rome was limited. However, Jesus's power is that of the risen Lord, the risen Savior. The power of Satan is also limited. John, in relating his vision and revelation and the message that he brings to the churches in the beginning of this letter, is reassuring to the believers that God knows and sees everything and that he is concerned about and loves them. We saw that last week that Jesus knew a person's name, and here we find that Jesus even knew where each of them lived. Jesus knew exactly where the believers were and what they were experiencing. Jesus knew all about the persecution that each person was facing. I want you to know that without a doubt, Jesus knows exactly what you're experiencing and where you live. It wasn't easy being a Christian in Pergamum with all the idolatry and worship of false gods, along with all the false teaching and the threats of persecution and death. Remain faithful regardless of circumstances. It's not easy to remain faithful in the face of immorality and false beliefs, like those promoted throughout the city. Mm -hmm. And yet, the believers stood firm in faith. They remained true to the name. The believers, as we see, were commended for refusing to recant their faith. The persecution that the Christians were living yeah, that, that they were living under did not lessen their faith or courage to stand for Christ. On the contrary, they may have become even more courageous in faith and remained a faithful witness to their faith in Jesus. John affirms that the Christians in Pergamum were living in a city where Satan lives, a place known as Satan's throne, a place that fully embraced and centered around the worship of idols. Yet the Christians in Pergamum were not packing up and leaving the city. They remained in Pergamum and were strong witnesses to the truth of the gospel. They were truly a light on a hill that would shine bright in the spiritual darkness of Pergamum. The Christians that John was addressing were the people who were permanent residents of the city. John or Jesus was not inferring that the believers should leave and move to a safer city. He never said that. They were not moving away to a city without persecution or without the presence of false gods. By saying the believers lived where Satan's throne was, was a reference to all the evil activity that was so openly embraced 
and participated in by people in the city. It was a way of saying the city was a center of evil. Tradition has its tradition has it that Antipas, a disciple of John, was martyred around 92 A.D. Antipas was a bishop of the Pergamum Church, and he is believed to have been roasted alive inside a bronze bull-like altar at the Temple of Diana. The believers in Pergamum would certainly have known and or witnessed the evilness of his death, but that event did not cause them to recant or turn from their faith. Instead, the Christians of Pergamum were commended for remaining faithful even in the face of such evilness. Bro. Bro. How awful do you have to be to to roast a bishop alive? Come on, guys. Oh my gosh. Beware of compromise. We're going to read that story one of these days. That's ridiculous. Well, there were faithful Christians. Some within the church were believing or were beginning to be influenced by false teaching. Some Christians were slowly starting to embrace a compromised lifestyle that soon found adultery and and immorality acceptable. Some began to welcome sexual immorality into the church that was once so egregious to the believers. The spiritual seduction that was seeping into the church was very subtle and over time would spiritually infect the entire church body if not confronted. John addresses two areas that Jesus had against the church in Pergamum. Some people were following the teaching of Balaam. Others were following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It appears that the church and church leaders were unaware of the spiritual compromise that was happening among the church body. One, a slow and quiet compromise following the teaching of Balaam. This happened because Balaam came up with the scheme to use Moabite women to slowly and quietly seduce the people to sin, turning them to adultery, sexual temptation, idol worship, and committing indecent acts of immorality. The Israelites knew the practice of adultery was forbidden and would have it rejected if openly presented with it, but they willingly accepted the idea when they were seduced to sin and followed the evil and selfish desires of their hearts. It appears that some of the believers were being led astray in embracing this ungodly adultery as a way of life. It may be that in uh, many that many in the church were unaware of the false teaching that was beginning to gain a foothold in the hearts of some believers. A lifestyle or teaching may seem okay because a strong Christian is doing it, but that doesn't make it okay in God's eyes. Mm. A lifestyle or teaching may seem okay because a strong Christian is doing it, but that doesn't make it okay in God's eyes. It would be like living next door to Christians who are doing something that's sinful and then thinking it's okay for you to do it because these other Christians are doing it. 
In Pergamum, the ungodly and powerful authorities of the day promoted the worship of idols and false teachings. They encouraged the participation of spiritually wrong acts that were sinful in God's eyes. Just because a powerful government makes a law that says something is legal, it doesn't make it spiritually okay when the word of God clearly says it's wrong. Explicit language and the use of God's name in vain are wrong. But because a Christian friend you know might look up to uses such language doesn't change the fact that it's any less sinful or egregious to God. Let us not be fooled or seduced into thinking spiritual compromise or watered down spiritual values are okay or acceptable to God Almighty. We must always keep away from evil and remain faithful to the name and word of God. Compromise from false teaching, the following of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans taught that Christians had the liberty to participate uh, in pagan orgies. By participating in such acts, Christians began to accept the culture of adultery rather than being the witness of God before an ungodly society. And I'll say this, a lot of people try and stay away from the Bible because they um, they don't want to like feel bad or something like that. Or they think like, I don't know, when they do something wrong, somebody's like, read your Bible. They're like, I'm not going to go read my Bible. Like, it must be boring or something. I this It gets real very quickly in the Bible, a lot of the times. And nothing, there is no leaf left unturned. No leaf left unturned. I bet a lot of y'all would have never, would have never thought I'd be talking about uh, orgies in a Christian podcast, but here we are. <laughs> and it's in the Bible. <laughs> it gets real uh, interesting and spicy a lot of the times, especially in the Old Testament. My goodness. But let's continue because I guess today is a more serious topic. You know, we want to do right, not only in our eyes, but in the eyes of God, because that's who this, this is all for, you know, I like that. Just because you see a, a, a strong Christian is doing it, doesn't mean that it's right for you to do. I'd be learning as I'm reading with you guys too, because I definitely, uh, I definitely need to take some of this stuff in as well, you know. Repent to ward off Satan's advances. Both the teachings of Balaam and that of the Nicolaitan were wrong, and if not addressed, could easily overtake the church. The Israelite people fell into adultery, even though they were warned. The Israelites, over time, embraced the worship of false gods. But when the people cried out to God, and God delivered them from their bondage to other nations, they would again turn away from worshiping the Lord. The people never fully turned away and slowly fell back into idolatry time and time again. Mm -hmm. John tells the Christians of Pergamum to repent. Repent meaning to turn away. Don't follow false and ungodly teachings. 
As Christians, we must be aware that the enemy of our souls wants to entice us to run after sin and embrace the worship of other gods as long as it's not Jesus. The enemy of your soul knows if he can get you to consider and believe false teaching, that teaching will take root and grow and overtake your spiritual heart. Remember, a little leaven will affect the entire batch. A little sin is just as bad as a big sin in God's eyes. Sin is sin. Some ideas may sound politically or socially good. Some beliefs or acts may be, uh, it may have an appearance of being innocent and yet be spiritually deadly. Every Christian needs to be spiritually on guard. How do we stay guarded? Glad you asked. <laughs> As Christians, we need to practice spiritual discipline and study the word of God. We need to have a sense of spiritual right and wrong and be guided by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Mm -hmm. We should also pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and then repent of any such false teaching that may have crept into our hearts. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. You're being such a good boy, trying to protect your mama. I appreciate you, but I need you to start barking, baby, okay? You're such a good boy. Thank you for protecting your mama. Go back, lay down, please. Go back, lay down. <laughs> He's such a good boy. Let's see. Do, 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 do. All right. We need to have a sense of spiritual right and wrong and be guided by the Holy Spirit in the word of God. We should also pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, then repent of any such false teaching that may have crept into our hearts. Most Christians have a spiritual sense of right and wrong. The enemy of your soul knows your weaknesses. He knows that he will not successfully get you to turn away from Jesus unless he uses the same tactics that he inspired Balaam and the Nicolaitans to use. Seduction, trickery, and half-truths. You can be seduced into thinking that you are okay when in fact you are slowly drifting away spiritually. The call to repent was before the church and every believer in Pergamum. Sin or false teaching will never be suppressed or eradicated through compromise. <laughs> false teaching will not go away or stop if ignored. It will only grow and affect more people. We are to repent, live a life of faith, and avoid a compromised lifestyle. Notice that the believers in Pergamum were not encouraged to leave the city. Instead, they are told to repent and to be victorious, to be overcomers. They were told to have ears to hear and listen to what the Spirit says. 
Much like Pergamum, evil in society is all around us and it is attempting to infiltrate the church and our very souls. May we always allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and let us repent and turn from sin, not allowing sin or spiritual compromise to gain a foothold within our hearts. Mm-hmm. I like this one because I had to repent literally earlier today. And I was like, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm the one in the wrong. There's no, a lot of the times ah, when we're the people in the wrong, it's easy to try and deflect or to try and be like, ah, no, I didn't have to this and that. No, no. If you're wrong, accept that you're wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Just it's okay to be wrong just as much as it's okay to be right. Ah, the thing is to when you acknowledge you're wrong, to understand that you were and that it was nobody else's fault but yours, to repent and then to move forward and do better. Mm-hmm. And moving on from that. What is today? The 17th? What's today's date? Yep, it is the 17th. That's crazy. We are more than halfway done with the first month already. I swore New Year's was like yesterday. Mm-hmm. Today, day 17, Jesus wants me to love them? Mm-hmm. Some people are just so unlovable. Or are they? What if God loved us in the same way that we love the unlovable? Mm-hmm. What if God loved us in the same way that we love the unlovable? Do you know that if you ask Jesus to have control of your life, you are considered a child of the king? Mm-hmm. Just imagine... He considers you a royal child in his kingdom. But what about that person in your class that doesn't dress the right way or the one who isn't very athletic? Could they ever be considered a royal child of the king of kings? Or does he view them as less lovable? You probably already know the answer. No one is less lovable to God. He created each person and he wants to have a relationship with them, no matter how sinful they are or how much they don't measure up, you know, in the world's view. God loves them and will forgive them if only they ask him to. Mm. Remember, God's grace to you today will pass that grace on to someone else, even someone who seems unlovable. Whisper of wisdom, if we love others, we are in the light, and we don't cause problems for them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. That's funny. I like how, I like how God always brings it full circle. Like, I read these the same, you know, I hear them the same time you guys do. When it comes to the the um, the whispers of wisdom, I try and read the articles before I read them to you guys. That way, you know, I feel comfortable and 
and I'm understanding of the information that I'm giving. If it's from the Bible, you know, then I, you know, I got to read it like when you're reading the Bible, you have to read it like you don't, like you have no understanding of anything else prior to. Because if you try and go into it, especially in the Old Testament, and read it and think about the definitions that you already have, most times it's literally not going to make sense to you. So you have to read it like you're reading for the first time ever. And you're like, all right, what does this mean? This has a meaning. I don't understand it. Let me pause and pray. Or let me go text my pastor or someone, you know, that I know is uh, active in reading the word of God to get a clearer understanding. So that's good. But I love how he turns it full circle and was like, God loves them and will forgive them if only they ask him to. It's just talking about repenting and all this other stuff. You know, he'll forgive you. But you have to ask him. He wants you to come to him and ask. He wants he wants to know that you think he is important enough to ask for forgiveness and not just assume. Because, I mean, the truth is Jesus died for our sins. So they're already forgiveness. We know that. But how much more respectful and valuable is it to know that, you know, you can humble yourself before God and submit and still ask for repentance even though he even though he already sent his son to literally die for us you know but I appreciate you guys I hope you all listen to this well and I hope you you take it in like I did because nobody is perfect and we're all children in the eyes of God which means that sometimes you're gonna mess up even when you try your hardest not to. But that doesn't mean that you still shouldn't try. And just because we know Jesus died for us, and just because we know our sins are already forgiveness, doesn't mean that we shouldn't repent and ask for forgiveness and just do better, you know? So, lesson of the day, do better, even if you don't know if you're doing wrong or not. Sit down, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what's wrong in your heart, and then repent, and then actively do better. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll take that advice myself, you know. I need it too. Not perfect. I'm definitely not Job, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I don't know about you guys, but my name starts with a J-O, but it does not end with a B. Mm-hmm. That's true for sure. But you guys have a great night.